This is the Edisto TV podcast, connecting the Blackwater region. And welcome to episode 25 of the Edisto TV podcast, the final podcast of 2014. Hello, Tom. Hello, Hugo. Um, this week we got several things on the podcast that I think are kind of interesting. First of all, I did forget to mention last week when we were talking about the uh, South Carolina Conservation Coalition getting together over at Camp Gravit. Several of the people in attendance there admitted to me off the record that they had heard the podcast. That even included some people who haven't actually been on the podcast. Yeah. And they had fairly nice things to say about it, which we always appreciate. And uh, if that reminds us to invite listeners, if you have anything you'd like us to be talking about on the podcast, if you have opinions for or against anything we say on the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, Tom, how do they get in touch with us? Uh, they can go to edisto.tv, hit the contact button. That would be the way to do it. Yep. All right. Well, we look forward to hearing from some listeners in the new year coming. Uh, What's new online this week over on the Edisto Concern site, Tom? Okay. Uh, A few things uh, interesting, getting some uh, looks and clicks and links and likes and all that. Uh, The new book from Larry Price, who's uh, our friend that we talked to throughout this uh, fight for the Edisto. Uh, Larry Price has been taking photographs of, of the Edisto River for Many, many years. And, yeah, in uh, fact, Larry and his wife Rosie have been uh, at the past several um, of the Edisto Friends get-togethers over in Orangeburg representing that, and their book has finally come to print. Yes, their book has finally come to print, and uh, we got a link to it out on the Facebook page. It looks like a beautiful book, uh, kind of a coffee table book, I guess you call it, with you know, just really nice-looking photographs. Absolutely, and it's called Edisto River Blackwater Crown Jewel. The imagery that Larry has captured for this book is absolutely amazing. Rosie has done an amazing job of writing copy for it. Uh, They're with, I think, Jogging Board Press. Is that right? That's right. And um, we certainly would recommend it as a, what would we call that, a late Christmas gift, perhaps? Yeah. Early birthday? Something. (laughs) Anything like that. It's it's really a, a great thing that they've done to give people a chance to see uh, some sides of the Edisto that maybe they've never seen, and um, boy, they've worked hard on it, and I think they've got just a wonderful thing as a result of that. Yep, there was another uh, book that I wanted to uh, put a link into. Uh, we we saw got a good look at the book by Dana Beach from the Coastal Conservation League, and he's got a book on the North Edisto, not the North Fork, but the North Edisto, north of Edisto Island. There, there's a place there called Devoe. Yes, the DeVoe Bank. Yeah, the DeVoe Bank, where I guess a lot of birds uh, go there, and he's taken some amazing photographs as well and and written up some things about it. Yeah, and and just because people ask me all the time about my documentary film, I'll point out Dana worked on this for 25 years. So I I, I, I have some space left in in, in my movie schedule. But again... have something done by... January? (laughs) I'd love to. Um, But Dana did a great job also on this, and in fact, I bought a copy of it. I can reveal as a Christmas gift for my mom, and Dana was kind enough to sign that for me last time I saw him. Very nice. Well, there's also, um, uh, I think you posted this one on the... uh the Sumter Item is, I guess, a newspaper over in Sumter, and uh, they had posted uh, an editorial from... Yeah, this is actually something that our man Doug Busby pointed out to me. Phil Leventis, um, who is a former Democratic state senator from Sumter, um, has a piece that is called a special to state house report, 
entitled Here We Go Again, where he talks about a variety of the environmental issues that South Carolina faces. And uh, in particular, he does there talk about the Edisto and the Surface Water Withdrawal Act in amongst some other issues like the Pinewood Landfill and stuff like that. So we certainly point that at us, uh, voice speaking out and um, addressing some of the issues that we have been trying to draw attention to here on the podcast. Yes, and uh, another one that I think leads us into our interview pretty well, uh, there was a, an article about this uh, lawsuit about something called Captain Sam's Spit. Exactly, and this is actually an area a lot like the DeVoe Bank that Dana Beach's book is about. So this was a lawsuit where they were trying to prevent development of an extremely low-lying spit of land um, and along the coast, and Amy Armstrong and the Skelp folks um, from the South Carolina Environmental Law Project, um, took the developer to court in order to try to prevent that from happening. Uh, we've posted an article about it, and also in the upcoming interview with Amy, she talks a bit about their success in protecting Captain Sam Spit. Um, and if you want to see what that area you know, has in terms of environmental diversity and so forth, you might look at Dana Beach's book, because DeVoe Bank is a very similar area. All right, and with that, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will have an interview with Amy Armstrong from Skelp. This is Tom from the Edisto TV podcast, and I just want to put in a word for Tyler Brothers. They've been serving the Blackwater region for over 100 years. They have a lawn and garden center with plenty of steel and husky chainsaws, weed trimmers, blowers, plenty of Husqvarna mowers and if you've got a lot of grass to cut check out those Husqvarna zero tone mowers they have three or four different models to choose from check them out at tylerbrothers.net or if you're on Facebook you definitely want to follow them and get the latest deals from them you can find them at facebook.com slash tylerbros or search for Tyler Brothers and you'll find Tyler Brothers for Carhartt clothing they are the place for guns and ammo, your Carhartt work clothes. They've got camo from Carhartt and Drake and many more. Work boots from Georgia Boot, Rocky, Red Wing, Justin Wolverine, and many more. They are the place for your safety shoes, your snake boots, your camo, whatever else you need when you are out in the swamp. Tyler Brothers, since 1904, it's the place for you to be on a Saturday afternoon. They're open 8 to 6, 6 days a week, closed on Sunday. Stay away from the superstores and visit Tyler Brothers in Wagner. Uh, while we were in the break, Tom mentioned to me that may have been the first time that I mentioned that we were having an interview with Amy. But uh, with us today, we do have Amy Armstrong. She is a lawyer, and she is with the South Carolina Environmental Law Project, which is SCALP. And we became aware of them uh, probably, what, two, three months ago when there was first a story about this lawsuit that they filed? Yeah, they had um, the, the article, The one I'm, I'll put a link to the one in the Times and Democrat, but basically it describes uh, how they are representing a number of landowners who believe that the current surface water withdrawal law, which is what we've been talking about for the last year, that it's basically uh, illegal. That, yeah, that, that, it, that, it, that it infringes on the repairing rights of landowners along South Carolina rivers, essentially. Yeah, because it effectively gives all, potentially gives all the water to the group upstream. If it gives them, particularly farmers, that now have special rights that they can take more and not have you know all these other hoops that others might have to. Yeah, um, from the Scalp website, they say they served a case on September 9th, 2014, 
requesting DHEC overturn parts of the Surface Water Withdrawal Act that allow industrial farms to withdraw large amounts of water entirely unfettered by a regulating permitting process. Uh, this means that while other landowners are losing their long-standing water rights, industrial agricultural operations are being granted far superior rights with fewer restrictions despite their use of extreme amounts of water. DHEC has filed a motion to dismiss. Uh, Skelp has filed a motion for a preliminary injunction. Uh, that was in November of 2014. And at this point, they are waiting for the judge to set a hearing date for those two motions. That is the latest update from the Skelp website. And we started talking to Amy to get a bit more insight into what was going on with that and other issues of importance. And um, anything else you want to toss in before we go there, Tom? Nope. Just uh, another, I guess, what I say about most of our guests, you know, just admire these folks that have been dedicating themselves to these causes for many, many years now. And um, she's been uh, doing this for a good while. Yeah. In fact, I started the interview by asking Amy to tell us who she is and what she does. And that's how it starts. My name's Amy Armstrong. Um, I'm the executive director of the South Carolina Environmental Law Project. And I've been in that position for four years. And prior to that, I was a staff attorney for just a little over eight years. And the, what the Environmental Law Project is, or SCALP, that's we, our acronym, um, is it's a some real small nonprofit public interest environmental law organization. And we act sort of like a law firm, except we are a nonprofit and we represent um, citizens groups and environmental groups. Uh, and individuals throughout the state in, in efforts to try and protect their communities, their quality of life from environmental impacts. And, and so they range from landfills to um, beachfront construction to water quality in wetlands and air quality and everything in between. Uh, so that's a little bit of, of my, you know, my background. Okay, I appreciate that. Um, now, the first time that I really became aware of y'all's organization was a couple of months ago. You know, we've been following what's happening with the Edisto pretty closely, and through that, what's up with the Surface Water Withdrawal Act, and saw a news item actually originally that there was a group of landowners who had filed a suit over the Surface Water Withdrawal Act, and it turns out that y'all are the, uh, the, the law folk behind that effort. Can you tell me what's up with that and, and what the position is and where that stands? Sure. So we filed a complaint in circuit court in, in South Carolina in September, and the nature of the case is it's a, essentially a constitutional challenge to the, the Surface Water Withdrawal Act and where how the act is structured is that it sets up two different programs. There's this permitting program, and then it sets up this registration program. For those of your listeners that don't know or aren't familiar with the act itself, uh, and, then, and so everybody, you know, industrial users, individuals, um, people that are wanting to withdraw over a certain amount of water need to go through this permitting process where there's a public notice, that there's an analysis that DHEC has to go through in order to determine whether that use is going to be reasonable. And they look at a number of factors, including safe yield, which has been something that's been debated among the, the scientists and the experts about how um, effective that is as, as a measure to ensure that there are going to be sufficient adequate flows left in our rivers. But there's also another process. It's called the registration process. 
and it doesn't require public notice. It's automatic. DHEC doesn't go through the permitting process. They don't make a determination of whether that use is reasonable, and it's, it's in perpetuity. It's a permanent authorization for uh, withdrawal of water. And that, those registrations apply only to agricultural users. So agricultural users get something greater than everybody else gets. Um, they're, they're presumed reasonable, and there isn't any way that DHEC can ever go back and revise a registration unless two things happen. One, the registered user has to exceed the registration amount, and DHEC has to prove that there's going to be um, environmental harm or degradation to the public and the or the environment. So it's a pretty high standard for DHEC to even ever revisit one of these registrations because, for example, you could have a river that's dried up, but if the, that agricultural user hasn't exceeded its registration amount, then there's nothing that DHEC can do. And so that's sort of laying the foundation for what the Act does. And our, our clients are individuals that, in South Carolina that live or own riparian lands. And so riparian lands are, for those who don't know, haven't heard that term before, it's land that has water flowing through or adjacent to it. So you've got a water body that's uh, adjacent to your property or flowing through your property. And as a riparian landowner, you get certain rights to the use of that water. Um, and an important right is to be able to protect yourself from upstream users that are unreasonably interfering with your consumptive use of that water. And so the case surrounds the, 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 the rights of those riparian owners, our, our plaintiffs specifically, but uh, I know y'all are very involved because some of your members and, and people that are following this are riparian owners and either live on or own property adjacent to our state's water bodies. And so you ha those, all of those people in this state, anybody that owns property along any water body is going to be a riparian owner and their rights are absolutely affected by this act because um, what the complaint says that we filed in court is that those riparian rights are taken from these owners without compensation and in violation of the Constitution because the South Carolina Constitution says that private property shall not be taken for private purposes, period. But what okay. the act does is takes those rights and gives superior rights to these uh, agricultural users as, uh, by way of the registration process. We can liken it to as water law in, in the western states where there are appropriative rights. So that's, you know, an appropriative system is how the West operates on water law. Here we've had riparian rights um, historically since South Carolina was, was founded. And so it's sort of what we have now is, is, a, is a, in the middle of between riparian rights and appropriative rights, except we don't really get the benefits of the appropriative system and we're taking away the benefits of the riparian system, so we're left with something that um, is less than ideal. Now, we can, we can move to more appropriative system, but there are a lot of things that occur in those systems that we don't have in place here. And I think probably the, the one that stands out the most is that 
when you have an appropriative system, it's sort of a first come first serve. And if you stop using those rights, then your then your rights go on to the next person. They can claim those appropriative rights. So it's it's not a permanent thing. It's only as so long as you're using it. And if they're already the, the, those rights are already allocated, then the next person just has to stand in line and wait until somebody stops using their appropriative rights. We don't have that. That doesn't happen in South Carolina under the Surface Water Act. Yeah, because I guess one of the things that you've mentioned I, I also thought was very strange, which is the fact that if you do an ag registration, it's yours in perpetuity as long as you know you you get the approval from DHEC. Um, the other well, thing. Well, DHEC doesn't. The, I mean, I, I need to just jump in here and point out that DHEC doesn't have an option of whether to approve. They have to. There isn't really a, a, a question of whether they can or not. It's just if somebody asks for a registration, DHEC has to give it to them. There's no real decision-making authority about are we going to give this registration or not. If it meets the, the legal requirements, it's, it's mandatory that DHEC issue one. Another thing that's in the ag registration that I thought was extremely strange from the first time we heard about it is that there is no public notice and there's no public hearing. I, I just I didn't even know the state could operate under those terms. Right, right. I mean that is that is you know equally troubling, and that's that's one of the things that we've asked the court to do is just eliminate the the whole registration process, which would the default would be that these agricultural users just go through the permitting process like everybody else, which does require public notice, which does allow for public comment, and which um, you know the public is aware and able to participate in the decision-making process. You can't do that at all with the registrations. Right. In fact, as I understand it, there's not even really any provision for them to talk to other state agencies like DNR, right? Right. There, that's okay. correct. There, there isn't. We found out about registrations because Freedom of Information Act submissions have been um, given to DHEC, and that's how we found out about what, what's been actually issued. Okay. But if you're so, an adjoining landowner, you have absolutely no downstream user or a riparian, riparian user that's downstream and would be affected. You don't get any kind of notice and don't have any kind of opportunity to have input at all into that registration decision. Yeah, and I certainly know that was one of the things when the Walther Farms registration at their Augusta Plantation site went in, that was one of the things that really got people upset was that it was happening right next door to them and they had no clue. Right. Um, so walk me through the process that, that, that happens now in, in terms of, of the suit that you filed. You've made a filing. I think there was supposed to be a hearing which has now been postponed. Where does it go? Sure. What happens? What happens if you win? <laughs> right. So uh, in November, two motions were filed relative to the case, and one was filed by DHEC uh, asking the court to dismiss the case. And, and there were multiple grounds for dismissal. None of them were elucidated in the motion. It was really like a page, a page and a half. And so it just it, it said um, that it that DHEC believes that the plaintiffs don't have standing, um, that there are some, uh, they don't think that we'll win on the merits, that, it, that, that the act is constitutional, and so that the, that's one motion that's pending is, is DHEC's motion to dismiss the case altogether and just have it thrown out. And, and that kind of a motion is based on the, on the pleadings and whether we've pled adequately. Um, the other motion is our motion for a preliminary injunction. 
and so we're asking the court to enjoin DHEC from issuing any more registrations until there's a decision on the merits of the case. Both of those motions were pending. They were scheduled for December 15th. Um, the, the DHEC lawyer asked for, well, actually, it's the, the Attorney General's office that's representing DHEC along with a DHEC staff attorney and then um, some out, an outside counsel from Charleston. And they uh, they asked the court for an extension on the motions hearing, and so and we agreed um, to the date of January 5th. And then the judge had a conference call with us and let us know that he felt like he wasn't going to be able to hear the case because of his relationship with one of the plaintiffs. And so that case, he asked for a, a description of the case um, and, a, and sort of a where we are status um, overview. And he was asking the court, the court administration, South Carolina court administration, to reassign the case to a new judge. So where that leaves us is, you know, waiting on court administration to, to, to assign the case to another judge. That those communications with the judge happened, I want to say, a week and a half ago, approximately. And about a week ago, I, I, I provided the, the information that the judge needed to, to make the request for the case to be reassigned. We haven't heard anything yet, um, so we're still waiting. I, I hope that it, it, it occurs quickly because when you know, motion for a preliminary injunction is, is a fairly urgent matter because uh, you're asking the court to enjoin an activity because they need to stop something from happening before it happens um, and, and or maintain the status quo. And so we're, um, the whole point of the injunction is to maintain the status quo, make sure that there are not any more registrations issued before the court actually can decide on whether this law is constitutional. So at, at some point, um, hopefully, I'm, I'm hoping that it gets, mm. it gets reassigned within the next week or so, and that hopefully we can have hearings on the motions in January. If we prevailed and the court agreed that the registration provision was unconstitutional, the court can, can um, do a couple of things. I mean, it, it could strike down the entire act itself. We haven't asked the court to do that, um, but certainly that's within the court's authority. I think the tendency for, for any judge is probably going to uh, issue as limited of a ruling as, as possible to address the issue, which would be, um, you know, from my perspective, a court could just simply strike down the, the sections that create this registration program. Um, there are you know a couple of areas in in the act where the the registration is um, is discussed and mentioned and the, the program set up and so the court could just simply strike those those sections of the law out and if in doing so all agricultural users that used to qualify for registrations would just be um, required to follow the program just as every other every other um, user that that needs to seek a permit for water withdrawal. So it was, it basically would just have the it have the, the permitting process in place, which I know from a lot of people's perspective is still less than ideal, 
but at least um, at least constitutional. Do you have any perspective on if that happened, whether through the law or through your case, would that change the status of existing water withdrawers under the registration? Would they get grandfathered into permits or what happens at that point procedurally? That's um, that's a difficult question. Uh, you know, it depends on how it's going to be addressed. Is it done legislatively or is it done through the court? So I think um, you know, legislatively, obviously, they, there's the possibility that you have these existing registrations grandfathered in. I, I, but I think that gets really complicated, and, and much more complicated if, if we prevail in the lawsuit. I don't think that a court could just, um, you know, say, "Hey, these are okay," because if you find that the act under which they were 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 issued was is unconstitutional, then uh, I think that you those would would not no longer be valid. Um, the registrations wouldn't, that have been issued would no longer be valid. Right now, there are only five that I'm aware of, so it makes it a lot easier for the court to, to handle that. Um, but, but one of the reasons that okay. we want the injunction, injunction is obviously because the more that you get, the more complicated, the more registrations that are issued, the more complicated it gets for the legislature or the court to, to address it. Sure, um, once you know, the toothpaste is out of the tube. Right, it gets more complicated, and, and the more you know, and the more toothpaste is out of the tube, the more difficult it is. I understand. Um, of course, a lot of what happens with the surface water permitting and registration happens within DHEC, and you know there has been a lot of conversation about whether or not DHEC has been really defending the resource or has been more interested in opening things up to business and agriculture. I know that recently we saw that uh, the head of DHEC, Catherine Templeton, has received an industry award for the um, perceived good duty she has done on behalf of business and industry. And I saw you quoted in the state's article on that. Uh, do you have any perspective on that? Um. Refresh me on the quote. Um, your quote here, it says, environmental lawyer Amy Armstrong, who represents clients that oppose permits for businesses called the award Curious, uh, yeah. is, is where you came into it. Right. Right. And I um, think, you know, part of, a, part of the reason I say that is really, you know, uh, my, my um, you know, I think that Catherine Templeton's done a, a, a good job at, at the agency. Um, I think she's brought in some good, you know, leadership skills and perspective and so um, I mean it is curious to me because I, I wonder what what not what she necessarily not what she necessarily did but what what they think that she did that's so wonderful <laughs> um, yeah I just I don't I don't know I don't know what it is and so I'm I, I am curious is there anything that you'd like to talk about and get out in front of the people who may stumble across our podcast uh, that we haven't talked about? Were there any other items that were on your radar that you thought we might be talking about in this conversation? I think that if, to the extent that your listeners don't know this or people that are, might, may stumble across the, the podcast don't know this, there are also efforts um, you know, there are discussions about what what legislatively could be done to really make to really fix all of the problems, and so um, just being involved in the in the legislative process and being you know I, I just urge people to, to pay attention to what our lawmakers are doing because this act was passed it 
it, even though it was portrayed that it had um, unanimous support among the environmental community, that's not that's not accurate. There were some groups that didn't didn't support and join in and in in, um, in support of the the act when it was being passed because of, of some problems. Now, Skelp, we weren't even in, asked to be involved in it, so we didn't play any role and weren't weren't in support of it. I mean, we weren't against it either. We just hadn't been asked to even look at it. But I know that there are you know at least one other group that 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 recognized that the registration process is a problem and it was something that the farm bureau quite frankly specifically you know said that they had to have and and so it, you know nobody now while nobody intended it to thought that it would ever end up quite um with problems that it has and that a walder farms could be something that comes out of the act it's still it, if you look at the language that's what it 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 opens the door to those kind of things happening so uh, if there if there are some legislative pushes, then I think people need to really make sure that their legislators know that this is something that's really important to the citizens, and that while while we absolutely recognize that agricultural uses are important in this state, um, it it needs to be tempered with making sure that we also have enough water in our rivers for for our wildlife, for recreational uses, for the, the sort of traditional uses that South Carolinians have made of our waterways um, and not uh, not exclude those other kind of uses for, solely for agriculture. Because we've had, a, we also have a strong history of, of, of small farming and agriculture in this, this state, which has, has survived with the recreational and um, you know, aesthetic and and really environmental and wildlife uses that have have existed side by side for many many decades and and really centuries. I I could I could say. So, I guess it's just sort of a be be paying attention and do let your legislators know if if we get to the point where there's um, legislation being proposed. Um, I will sort of along the same. You asked if I had anything else that I'd like to talk about, and I, I'm going to take a moment just to talk about one of our recent um, victories in the South Carolina Supreme Court um, that, that could could have some applicability to this case. Uh, just two days ago, the South Carolina Supreme Court ruled um, in in our favor. We're, we rep, we were representing the Coastal Conservation League in a challenge to. A um, the permit that would authorize this half-mile-long, 40-foot-wide concrete block structure, and it would cover about two, two and a half, or close to three acres, or nine football fields of of critical area tidelands, lands that are below the mean high-water mark. Um, basically, a, a, a sandy beach-like area on the Kiowa River, and the purpose of that wall was to facilitate a development on Captain Sam Spit, which is a 150-acre barrier island spit that is pristine and has absolutely no development on it. It's got you know, an emerging maritime forest. There are you know, dolphins that strand feed on, on this, this spit. Uh, there are, are a variety of endangered birds, piping plovers, red knots that fuse the spit for feeding on the mudflats, and it's, an, it's just an undisturbed area, and so it, it's a pretty unique and valuable resource in South Carolina. It's one of only three or four barrier island spits that the public has access to in the state, 
um, where where they can go and see what a what an undeveloped spit looks like, and and why I think it's got some relevancy to our Surface Water Act case is because we the case discusses the public trust doctrine and that lands below mean high water mark are are held in trust by the state for the benefit of the citizens of the state. And these are resources that provide great value to our citizens. Um, you know, whether it's just you want to go, you know, take a kayak trip, or whether you're boating and or fishing on the uh, on the creeks, or whether you're or rivers, or just you know watching birds, or whatever uses that you're making of the river, that those are important values to the public and the citizens. And and the court really um, went was pretty detailed about. Um, how important it is to protect those public trust resources. Uh, and one of the claims that we make in the suit is that it, it, the act violates the public trust doctrine by not protecting those public trust resources. Um, you know, it, it's only been, the opinion's only been out for two days, so it's, I'm still um, dissecting how we're going to, how and we can use this case to, to help um, help us with the Surface Water Act case, but I think there are definitely some implications because both cases are talking about um, you know, pub the public's use and, and um, public trust resources in addition to those private riparian um, rights that we, we talked about earlier. We certainly thank Amy Armstrong of the South Carolina Environmental Law Project for taking the time to talk to us and look forward to hearing back from her as this uh, process continues to learn what, what actually comes of the lawsuit and whether or not we will get some relief for the surface water situation through that venue. That's not really one of the avenues that we had been pursuing ourselves, but it sort of shows that we have friends out there who are worried about the same things that we're worried about. Yeah, it is. And it's interesting, too, if if um, if if the court was to determine or declare or however you say rule that this law is illegal, I would think that would really help us get this thing changed. You I know, mean, it, that, that would be a game changer because at that point they have taken issue in particular with the agriculture registration process. Right. And, you know, one of the things that a lot of the people we've been talking to about this are saying needs to happen is at some point there needs to be a threshold where the registration becomes a permit and really that the registration needs to go away. And at some water withdrawal level, right. you, you, you have to go through the permitting process regardless of what you're taking the water for, whether it's for agriculture or municipal use or industrial use. So we're watching this with interest. We'll see what happens. Meanwhile, we are also pursuing other remedies, including hopefully some uh, legislation to come forth in the 2015 legislative session. And speaking of 2015, it's right around the corner. We've made an executive decision that we are not going to do another podcast this year. We're going to pick it up the first week of January with a uh, brand new podcast. Um, and as we draw the year to an end here, Tom, uh, let's talk about the podcast. This is episode 25. We've been doing about seven months. We started back in May, right? May 26 was our first podcast. Uh, we've done 25 episodes in, in uh, about seven months. We've had over 8,000 listens. So that's either somebody downloaded or they streamed it through the, through the web. My mom. Over yeah, and over again. Yeah, she loves the sound of your voice. <laughs> and uh, 
Our most popular was uh, still is episode 11, which was uh, from Bill Marshall uh, interview. He had uh, 753 listens. Yeah, and I think that also coincided with right when we did the Blackwater Festival. It was after Blackwater. Yeah, yeah so, so hopefully our outreach efforts there got a bunch of people to listen. And I'd like to think that some of those folks liked it enough that they've come back to listen to subsequent episodes. A few. As well. <laughs> not, as, not that many. A lot of them, I think, may have listened once. <laughs> well, if, if, if you know somebody who's listened once, once and hasn't come back, tell them that we'll be back again in 2015 with uh, one every week or 10 days or so, the uh, Edisto TV podcast on a regular, irregular schedule. And I think we're going to have a lot to talk about in the next uh, four to six months um, with the with the legislation, legislative session coming in soon. We know that a lot of our friends in the uh, conservation arena are gearing up to... Uh, do something big, hopefully, and, and really push to try to change this law. So I, I think we're going to have lots to talk about. Yeah, and in all seriousness, uh, th- there there has been a big move on the part of Farm Bureau to get their message out there over the past few months, where I think maybe the conservation community, in taking some time to try to get our message together, might have lost the initiative in some senses in that conversation. So I know that we and a lot of the people we've been talking to have committed to really coming back and, and making our case as clearly and as strongly as we can in the coming few months. Yeah, I think uh, Farm Bureau pulled a pretty good maneuver by, by telling us they would talk to us and then pushing it off and putting it back. And so what's happened is really they're not – what we're seeing is they're not really interested in talking. And – um I think they're pretty much their their position at this point is uh, don't change the law, and so we absolutely I think we have a very clear battle lines. Some people think this law is a problem, and some don't. Well, and something that we've been saying right along is this is not anti-farmer, and we've been going out and talking to farmers about this. And we're getting a very strong response that Farm Bureau does not speak for all farmers. Absolutely. And in coming months, we'll be hearing from some of those farmers who feel differently on this issue uh, than Mr. Winkles and his cohorts over at the, uh, the Farm Bureau in Columbia. Yep. Let's let it happen. Okay. Well, Happy New Year. And Merry Christmas to you, Tom. Happy holidays to everyone, whichever holiday you prefer. Uh, we are going to be back with Episode 26 in January. And until then, we'll see you next time. This is the Edisto TV podcast, produced by Edisto TV, connecting the Blackwater region.